Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to a lecture and discussion on corruption in Latin America. We have felt that it was urgent to analyze the phenomenon of corruption, a worldwide scourge that doesn't recognize borders and defies everyday police organizations, judiciaries, and governments in Latin America. Above all, we didn't want to have such analysis reduced to a brief headline. We felt much more was needed, inquiring into its roots, its practices. Many believed that a judicial slight hit on the fingers was the remedy for such a malignancy. So in order to make a significant contribution to the study and understanding of corruption, we invited a renowned university professor and distinguished author who will widen our perspective on corruption in Latin America, Dr. John Polga Ekimovich, who currently teaches political science at the United States Naval Academy. His numerous publications attest to the strength of his knowledge. After his lecture, we'll open a period of questions and discussion with the public. We express our thanks to Dr. John Walters, Vice President of our institution, for his backing of our programs. We also thank our new Director of Public Events, Sean Kelly, whose support has proven key to the event. Thank you, Sean. And without any further ado, I turn the podium to our speaker. Professor? Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Dottenblum. Thank you to the Hudson Institute for the invitation to speak here today. And thank you to all of you uh, for showing up. I usually have this type of attendance in, in class, but my students at Naval Academy are obligated to show up. So uh, thank you for voluntarily coming here. Corruption in, in, in Latin America uh, is in the news a lot these days, and we're seeing it with the, the octopus that is the Odebrecht scandal in, in Brazil, with, um, with any number of cases of corruption in Mexico, um, the resignation of, of political leaders in a number of countries, the La Línea scandal in, in Guatemala, and even, even smaller corruption scandals in places that we think uh, uh, are generally free from corruption, like the resignation of Vice President Raúl Sendec in, in Uruguay this past summer. Uh, you know, to, to, to begin, oh, I should do this probably, to begin, uh, Brazil, right? Pet, the Petrobras Odebrecht scandal has been described as one of the most astonishing corruption schemes to ever be uncovered. It is in the running for the largest corruption scheme in terms of, of dollars uh, to ever be uncovered. Right? It's resulted in probably the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, the president, the uh, conviction of her predecessor, Lula da Silva, 
for money laundering, the jailing of billionaires, right, billionaire businessmen, and it's, it's exposed a culture of systematic graft in, in Brazilian politics, okay? Odebrecht willingly is deciding to pay a $2.6 billion fine, right? It gave out, we have recorded that it's given out more than $800 million in, in bribes, right? This is ensnared other political leaders, uh, Peruvian President uh, Ollanta Humala, Alejandro Toledo, and the current president, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, who just barely survived an impeachment process uh, in late 2017, right? It took down uh, the vice president of Ecuador, Jorge Glass, who was also accused of having received bribes from Odebrecht. And, and in many, kind of many ways, this scandal, the uncovering the scandal is such a momentous occasion because it is, it's laying bare the, 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 central, uh, the central importance of a phrase that Brazilians say, of sadly, all the time, which is, roba mais faz. He robs, but he gets stuff done, right? This idea that Odebrecht is not just across Latin America, it's, it's pervaded every single level of Brazilian politics and society, and in some respect, Brazilians had grown to accept that, okay? Uh, I mean, you can see from the scale here on the map that the bribery probe has touched uh, almost every country in Latin America. Meanwhile, in Mexico, right, a country similarly beset by scandal. We have a president who seemingly came into office touting uh, anti-corruption credentials and then is immediately, uh, immediately ensnared in, in problems of his own doing, right, such as uh, criticism for purchasing a multi-million dollar house, right, from government contractors. Meanwhile, state governors have been arrested three recently were arrested abroad trying to escape justice, and 11 of the country's 32 governors are currently under investigation or fighting prosecution for corruption. Right? It's gotten to such a degree in Mexican society that we have on the left an actual book that was released last year called the Corruccionario, the Corruptionary, which is a dictionary of, of corruption words in Mexico. There's also the Corruptur that many of you might have heard about. Um, the twice-weekly tour that leaves in, in, which is free, in Mexico City that goes by um, public works projects and houses of people that have been accused of corruption, right? I mean, this is a really big deal. So why am I cautiously optimistic? Why am, why am I not, not so depressed about the state of corruption? Well, you know, I, I think that it is, it's a thesis that's been explored, and, and I want to talk about it in a little bit greater depth here, which is that in, in these countries, democratic institutions have grown stronger. And as those institutions have grown, grown stronger, they have uh, helped empower people and civil society and the media right, to, to challenge the old way of doing business and the old ways uh, of, of doing politics. Right? And I think this represents progress. Now, the progress is going to come with lots of revelations like this, uh, but it's progress nonetheless. Right? Probably, you know, the, the worst case for me, Brazil probably doesn't even represent the worst case of corruption in Latin America. Right now, I think the worst, the worst case is probably Venezuela. Right? But we're not hearing a lot about cases of corruption in Venezuela. Right? It's, it's reported somewhat by the, the international press, Reuters and the AP and things like this, here in the United States. Uh, 
But we're not hearing about it because the institutions don't exist in Venezuela currently to address this issue, whereas they do now to, to, to some degree in Mexico and in Brazil, right? Uh, in 1996, the word corruption appeared in 27 Mexican headlines. Uh, in 2015, it appeared 3,500 times in Mexican headlines, right? Which represents not just that there is more corruption, but rather that corruption finally is being criticized openly, right? It's the breaking of, of the omerta, right? The Sicilian word for, for the, the silence that binds uh, everyone in, in these kinds of environments. So, you know, what is corruption? This is what we'll be talking about today. So I'm using this term uh, academically as the improper use of public office in exchange for private gain, okay? So essentially what this involves is blurred lines be be between the public and private spheres, including exchanges, right, that may offer inducements for some, for some benefit, as well as exchanges that deviate from accepted norms, okay? In some, in some respect, this third point becomes problematic because what if corruption becomes the accepted norm, right? Uh, what are some examples of corruption? Kleptocracy, tax evasion, illegal surveillance, sale of public office, extortion, bribery, graft, perversion of justice, misappropriation, forgery, embezzlement, intimidation, undeserved pardons, blackmail, cronyism, kickbacks, influence peddling, perjury, the list goes on and on. Um, we will be dealing kind of in general with this idea of corruption, but implying all those different uh, subtypes, okay? And even though generally we think corruption, what springs to mind is Odebrecht or La Línea in Guatemala or the things going on right now in Honduras or, uh, man, there are a lot of corruption cases. Uh, but really, probably the most damaging type of corruption is that that exists uh, on a daily basis for Latin Americans. The types of things that they need to do to go about uh, their daily lives, right? And their interactions with uh, street level bureaucrats, right? So civil servants, policemen, and judges, and teachers, and, and other bureaucrats, and simply in order to get things done, right? That is just as damaging, if not more so, than the big scandals that make the news. So what are the causes of, of corruption? Uh, Oftentimes, we hear in Latin America that it's a result of Spanish and Portuguese rule during colonial times, right? Um, this 15th century formula or 16th century formula that, that developed, which said, obedezcase, pero no se cumpla, right? So obey, but do not comply, uh, which is the idea, simply the double legal standard that existed that acknowledged the king's authority while preventing royal law from encroaching upon local customs and privileges. So sure, there, there are probably historical roots in Latin America uh, for that corruption. But more broadly, academic evidence suggests other things. For example, economic development plays a major role in, in corruption, right? The, the countries that we generally see in Latin America that have remained above the fray are, are the wealthiest ones, right? Uruguay, Chile, Costa Rica, which generally have uh, good reputations when it comes to uh, probity, right? And the poorer the country generally, uh, the greater the level of corruption. Furthermore, strong institutions are at the heart of this countries. Again, Uruguay, Chile, Costa Rica, with strong institutions uh, with independent and autonomous uh, uh, institutions are able to 
stamp out corruption, whereas in countries like Honduras or Guatemala where they don't exist, or Venezuela where they used to exist and no longer exist, those countries are unable to do so. Democracy, uh, as democracy, level of democracy increases and horizontal accountability increases, uh, corruption decreases, right? The, the academic literature shows us that. We see similar, uh, similar patterns with regards to economic inequality, bureaucratic red tape, and the freedom of the press, uh, which I just referred to in, in, in Mexico, okay? So there are things that can occur, macroeconomic and macro-political causes that can increase or decrease corruption in these states. We'll be talking about some other things uh, as well in just a couple of minutes. So the causes, those are the causes, and the effects of corruption obviously are what should be so concerning to all of us, right? If corruption got things done, was just a way to, to grease palms in order to get things done more efficiently and faster, then maybe we could have a discussion whether the, the means justify the ends. But that's not the, not, not the case, right? It's been shown that corruption decreases economic growth in economies, right? It decreases confidence in political systems, decreases trust in parties and political efficacy, the idea that citizens believe they can make an impact on politics, right? And as a result, it also decreases political participation, okay? Broadly, we also know that this increases the costs of doing business in these countries, okay? Uh, these negative political, economic, and social consequences are well known, and this is why we care so much about the topic and why we strive to, uh, strive to address it, okay? The other more damaging aspect of corruption, or equally as damaging, is the fact that corruption tends to cause even more corruption, okay? So here I have uh, graphics from the Latin American Political Opinion research project. This is a, an annual survey or biannual survey, depending on the country, that looks at uh, pub, the public's opinions towards different uh, issues, public attitudes. And so on the left is a graphic that, uh, that charts the percentage of respondents. Might be very small, small uh, wording here, so I will read them to you. But it's the percentage of respondents who say paying a bribe is justified. And what we see here is at the very top is Haiti with 38.5%, the Dominican Republic at 29.5%, followed by Ecuador, Jamaica, Honduras, Panama, Nicaragua, and Mexico, right? Overall, more than one-fifth of respondents across Latin America say that paying a bribe is justified in order to get things done, right? That should be incredibly troubling to us, all right? And that's demonstrated by the chart on the right, which is... Uh, the result of statistical regression showing the predictors of corruption tolerance, okay? And essentially, there's a, there's a, for those of you who might have a hard time seeing because this is so small, my apologies, there is a dashed line through the middle, and that rep represents kind of a null effect, neither positive nor negative effect. And numbers to the right, or the dots to the right, represent positive effects, and the ones to the left, negative effects. So we see in order from top to bottom, perceived corruption, corruption victimization, uh, receives government assistance, number of children in household, age, skin tone, wealth quintile, level of education, woman, and urban. What this tells us is that the largest positive effect 
on people tolerating corruption in their society is being a victim of corruption, right? Which is to say, the idea that corruption is endemic is shown statistically, right? If you are involved in a corrupt transaction or you're a victim of corruption, you are more likely to say that corruption is okay. And that cycle continues, right? So the trouble is, how do you break that cycle? How do you make sure, how do you, how do you make sure that corruption does not become endemic or how do you break out of uh, the endemic environment, okay? So with all that said, what is the current state of corruption in Latin America? Where does Latin America stand with regards to corruption? I started off with some examples of uh, corruption scandals in the region, and I said, maybe we should be a bit more optimistic. Do the numbers back that up? In short, no. No, they do not. Okay. This, uh, this graphic is from the Cor Corruption Perception, uh, excuse me, Corruption Perceptions Index uh, that was released last month by Transparency International. And the Corruption Perceptions Index is a methodology uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, that ranks countries by their perceived levels of corruption as determined by expert assessments and opinion surveys. And this is what we see, okay? This is what we see. Red is not good, okay? Latin America is all red. You can see Venezuela is the darkest of the red. That's not good. That's not uh, the rojo, rojito of, of Chavismo. That is the red of being really, really corrupt. Um, on a scale that places better performing countries at the top and worse at the bottom, Latin America lags behind the most developed economies of North America and Europe and ranks comparably basically to Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and to a lesser degree, East Asia. It ranks only better than Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and North Africa, right? Um, so what is this telling us? There are six countries uh, in, in Latin America and the Caribbean that are above the global median, right? And the other uh, 18 countries uh, in Latin America and the Car Caribbean are below that global median. So why is that? And why might we think that corruption is getting better despite these scandals and despite these rankings? Uh, similarly, the data from LAPOP from the America's Barometer Public Opinion Survey Project seems to agree with the expert assessments, which is to say the people on the ground in Latin America are agreeing with the experts, right? The masses, they're also saying, hey, this is a major problem, okay? Corruption experiences among the entire population here on the left, on the right, corruption experiences among those who had opportunities to be targeted. Uh, and it's basically saying uh, the, the percentage of people who were victims of corruption ranging from 10% down to 1%, but a police officer asking 10%, 10% of Latin Americans were asked for a bribe by a police officer in the 2016-2017 period, which to me is, is quite amazing. Corruption experiences among those with the opportunities to be targeted. We have 15% asked to pay a bribe to process a document in the municipal government. That is not a scandal that's going to make the front page of the newspaper, but it's equally as damaging, right, if not more so. Uh, some statistics here, one in five individuals was a victim of corruption in any given year in Latin America. The regional prevalence of corruption and victimization has changed little since 2004, which is to say this low-level corruption has not gotten any better over the past 15 years, right? The view that corruption is widespread is highest in those countries that have had recent scandals involving major political figures, 
all right, which is to say people's perceptions of corruption, the masses' perceptions, even though they may not have been victims of, uh, kind of at the street level, they're also influenced by what they see in the press. Uh, and <laughs> again, uh, corruption tolerance, unfortunately, has been steadily increasing in the region since 2010. Okay, um, and then two other figures, and then I'm almost done with 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 these tiny little figures. Um, on the left, corruption victimization, and then on the right, more than half or all politicians are corrupt. People uh, responding that they think yes or no to this. On the left, Bolivia tops the chart at corruption victimization, with 40% excuse me, forty percent of Bolivians saying that they were targeted for corruption. So. A quick anecdote here. Do I have to stay behind the lectern? Is it okay if I come out here? Does that matter? Uh, I'm antsy. So um, 10 years ago when the survey was taken in Bolivia, Bolivia scored near the bottom, which is to say Bolivians did not think that they had been victimized for corruption. And this was an astounding result because the perception of Bolivia was it's a really, really corrupt place on a daily basis. And yet, on a separate question, when the percentage of Bolivians uh, where Bolivians were asked, what percentage of you basically uh, had to pay money in order to get things done? It was the highest uh, country in Latin America, which is to say Bolivians were paying bribes, but they did not consider those bribes to be illegal. To them, it wasn't corruption at that point. Right? And that's more damaging than anything, right? that they, ha they hadn't come to that realization. Whereas here, right now, what we're seeing is Bolivians are saying, oh, yeah, we're paying bribes, but now we know that it's corruption. I would argue that's a good thing. Okay, uh, On the right, then, more than half of politicians are corrupt. Brazil tops the chart, tops the list, uh, right? greater than 70%. Uh, greater than With that being said, wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say who are the 30% saying no, considering that you have uh, over half of the Senate and, and the national deputies in Brazil basically in, in the ethics committees under investigation for corruption? Right? I think objectively you would have to say, yes, that's the case. Okay? But that's influenced a lot by what's going on in the news. So this is a static look at corruption. What can we take away from this? Well, if we look dynamically, some things have gotten better. So what I did, oh, first of all, there's a great deal of variation. I think that we should talk about that variation. Talking about Latin America as a region uh, and aggregating everything together doesn't separate the success stories from the ones, uh, <coughs> Venezuela, that, that are not so successful. right? And so we have to look uh, over time at what changes have occurred. And so I was excited about doing this. I spent Saturday doing this at, at home. I thought, I'm going to show everyone how all these countries have gotten better over time. And so I went to the Corruption Perceptions Index from Transparency International, and I put all the data together from the very first year that the, the index was released in 1995 to the present, and I plotted them. And I was very disappointed. Uh, I have the 19 countries of, of Spanish and Portuguese-speaking Latin America, and at the very end, the United States. And I thought I was going to see a steady increase in the perceptions of uh, higher means less corrupt, lower means more corrupt, or perceptions of greater or less corruption. I thought we're going to see the, the trends go up. Uh, there is one trend that goes up, which is Uruguay. Good for Uruguay. Everything else uh, seems to be pretty static or has decreased, um, which, is, which is troubling, right? Uh, it's even, well, and 
so I, it wasn't exactly what I'd hoped to see. And then I, I overlaid these graphs, right? So here they are overlaid on one another, all of the countries together between 1995 and 2017. What do we see? Well, this allows us to find out what the, what the or to visualize what the outliers are and what that can tell us about corruption in, in the region. So at the very top, I added the United States. The very top, you'll see the United States, Uruguay, and Chile. These are always the outliers, right? Uh, they're the best performing countries in terms of experts' assessments of whether or not their politics, society, and economies are corrupt or not. So this is, this is good, good for these countries. Uruguay and Chile are basically similar to, to the United States prior to, to 2018, right? And that's a good thing. That speaks very highly of those two countries. Not far behind, but somewhat strangely, uh, is Costa Rica, which is generally very high, as well as Cuba, which is a more interesting case. Uh, that Cuba is perceived to be less corrupt than uh, the bulk of the region. Okay, so what does this tell us? Once again, we can look at Costa Rica and, and the similarities that Costa Rica has with uh, Chile and, and Uruguay and say strong institutions, independent and autonomous controllers, judicial police, uh, prose public prosecutors, and things like this. Uh, public financing for these things that is separate from the executive branch. Okay, so all sorts of important things in these three countries that doesn't exist in the rest of the region. Another very important thing with these three countries, and again, I'm excluding Cuba from this, is the public tendering process is, uh, has to be fully transparent, which means you're not having single bids, essentially, in these three countries. Right? So simple laws that are followed by agencies that are autonomous means that these places seem to, uh, if not have less corruption, at least be perceived as having less corruption. So we have a bunch of, of countries in the middle, and what do you think is a country that is somehow managed to decrease over time and is, uh, is the caboose here? Yeah, yeah, Venezuela. I did it in red. Uh, Venezuela was second lowest behind Paraguay and has somehow fallen over time, right? Which is to say, uh, it is number 169 out of 180 countries in the world right now, which would place it along the lines of Chad and uh, Yemen and Afghanistan, right? Which are generally not countries, I'm sure lovely people in lovely places, but not countries you want to be compared to in terms of corruption and, and transparency, okay? And so, you know, this is what, is, what is the story that Venezuela is telling us? Well. When power is concentrated, it's, it's, it's the story of populism, right? It's telling us what happens when power is concentrated in one individual and horizontal accountability is thrown out the window. Right? When that occurs, you have a, a greater probability for corrupt practices and transfers to take place and an absurd blurring of the lines between the public and the private. Uh, you may have seen today that the Trump International has licensed uh, the presidential seal to to make into golf tees. So this is the type of thing that uh, I I laughed when I when I saw the story. But it's a little thing, but that probably isn't a good thing in the sense that that blurs the public and the private, right? And we see that in a much grander scale uh, throughout these countries. Okay. Now we're finally we're getting to the to the discussion part. That's a lot of that's a lot of exposition, and I and I thank you for bearing with me.
So what are the causes for optimism? Well, these countries have made great strides. And despite those great strides, we're not seeing it reflected in the statistics. And that should be natural. That makes a lot of sense. The CPI, the Corruption Perceptions Index, is a scale of perception of corruption, not corruption itself. How do you actually measure corruption? That's very difficult, right? And so what we are seeing is going to be lagged. The changes that we see will lag behind uh, what is actually going on in those countries in terms of how they're reflected in these data. So Uruguay probably cleaned up much, much uh, prior to 2007, but we didn't really see the increase until 2007 in Uruguay, right? Uruguay started to clamp down on these things basically after uh, upon redemocratization in 1985. It was a 20-year lag to see those perceptions of corruption in the country to, uh, to reflect that, okay? So first thing, it's so important, this challenge to Omerta, right? That declining public tolerance, there's a declining public tolerance for corruption. We see a challenge to this, and we see an accountability revolution across the region, uh, most clearly in Mexico and Brazil. And then with the help of the CICIG in Guatemala, we see it there. With the help of the MAXI in Honduras, we see it there. We see it with people protesting against the, the perceived trade-off in, uh, in Peru between President uh, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski and the, the KG Fujimori faction um, of the party, right, in terms of freeing ex-president Fujimori in exchange for votes uh, for PPK to avoid, to avoid uh, impeachment. Uh, the rigorous code of silence and non-interference has been broken. The seal is broken, and that's a great first step, okay? Second of all, like I was saying, the shifts in corruption, any shift in corruption, is usually very slow. So the United States had a very corrupt civil ser service, basically, right, until, uh, until 1883 and beyond, in fact, right? It led to the assassination of James A. Garfield, right, when, a, when a, uh, someone who had contributed heavily to his campaign and was expecting to be rewarded with a patronage uh, appointment was, uh, was passed over, he went and assassinated the president. And so hastily, uh, Chester A. Arthur and legislators passed the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act of 1883, right? This included a series of disconnected local and national accountability efforts, regulation of trusts, elimination of patronage, uh, patronage hiring, right? That's what the, the act is known, but mo best known for, and restrictions on corporate campaign contributions. These are, were great steps in the United States in 1883. The civil service of the United States essentially continued to operate as a patronage network until at least the 1920s and probably until the New Deal, which is to say there was a lag of at least 40 years before we saw real changes in the United States, right? The civil service and, and public accountability catching up to what had occurred in 1883 uh, following that assassination, okay? We see similar things in places like Sweden and Norway and Finland that we see as, as paradigms of probity, right? There's no corruption that goes on in these places. Well, first of all, there is. Uh, but second of all, it took a long time to get to that point. And we have to be conscious of that when we look at Latin America to say, well, things haven't changed in Brazil. Well, yeah, they haven't changed in Brazil, but not enough time has passed yet, right? Give it some time. Uh, 
The Brazil's constitution, which was enacted in 1988, conferred independence on the public prosecutor's office. This was an incredibly important development. Uh, what it did was it allowed, uh, it allowed the, the public prosecutor and the judiciary the independence to go about investigations without worrying about being removed by the president or Congress. Okay? Uh, but they didn't really exercise their, uh, their autonomy until very recently. And in fact, uh, Geraldo Brindero, who was the chief prosecutor under uh, Fernando Henrique Cardoso from 1995 to 2003, uh, was called the mothballer general of the republic, basically because he didn't undertake any investigations against uh, alleged corrupt officials. Okay? But we're seeing it recently. Right? So there's going to be a lag in how things change. Okay. Right. Three, we have a rise in anti-corruption legal frameworks that have been adopted throughout the region. There's a wonderful study uh, by Kevin Casas, uh, Samora, who looks at this. And basically, legal frameworks that were starting to, to come into existence in 1995 have now been adopted by nearly all the countries in the region. Now, that doesn't mean that all the countries are following those frameworks, but those frameworks exist. And at some point in the future, maybe they will be followed in all the countries. Right? This is really important uh, in addition to, to simply changing things, you have to actually, actually have to, to change laws. Right? Mexico in 2015, it took to 2015 until Mexico adopted constitutionally a set of amendments to create new institutions, independent autonomous institutions to address corruption. We're not going to see the results of that right now. Right? That was only two years ago. Uh, so decades down the ro ro uh, road, I think that we will see the benefits of these changes. Right? Fourth, excuse me, fourth, we have frameworks in a regional or international context that are stronger than ever. We have the OECD's anti-bribery convention, the, the, uh, the Messi-Seq from the OAS that countries have signed. And what this promises is cooperation between countries and among countries to combat corruption. The scandals in, in Brazil and even the, the PDVSA, nascent PDVSA scandal in Venezuela, those, those are due in small part to help from the United States, from prosecutors in the Justice Department and the Treasury Department and the State Department in the United States. Right? And that's because the United States belongs to these frameworks. Okay? So uh, this is very important. Okay? And that also speaks to the influence of international best practices, which can help speed things up, speed up the pace of change in these countries. And I think the two best examples that we have internationally are Rwanda and Georgia. Two countries that were perceived as being incredibly corrupt, uh, in Georgia's case, upon independence uh, in the early 1990s, and Rwanda's case, uh, basically up until the early 2000s. But through the adoption of kind of all of the above types of, uh, types of uh, frameworks or, or ideas, they are now among the, the kind of upper median they're above the median in, in, in terms of fighting corruption and the perceptions of corruption in those places. Okay? That's, uh, that's a really positive step. What can we learn from the cases themselves beyond our, uh, beyond our specific uh, 
specific cases, or excuse me, from our regional look at things, what can we learn from the specific cases? Well, Lava Jato is the first thing. So Lava Jato, right, the car wash scandal, it was called car wash not because it was about money laundering, but because literally the money was being laundered through a car wash, right? But, so, uh, so we have the car wash scandal and, and some, you know, the achievements, this uncovered systematic corruption at the state-owned oil company, Petrobras, right? Corruption throughout the political class, all echelons of, of uh, politics, and among politicians across the region, okay? Um, I talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but you can see from, from the graphic, again, that this touches uh, every place on the continent, okay? Uh, why? Like, what are the lessons from this in incredibly important uh, incredibly important case. And the first, the first thing is something I've referred to already, which is the importance of judicial autonomy, right? Which is to ensure horizontal accountability of, of institutions, of the legislative, executive, and judicial branch. You need to have an independent judiciary. And in Brazil's case, this was ensuring autonomy and independence of the Attorney General's office, okay? And this independence starts with several guarantees. Um, it's about recruitment of personnel through a transparent process of public merit. That, that can easily be, be instituted in any country, right? In Brazil, after two years in office, members of the Attorney General's office or the magistrate acquire tenure, right? Like professorial tenure, where they can stay in office. They can only be dismissed by judicial conviction when they commit a crime or they're convicted of having committed a crime, okay? They cannot be removed or dismissed from processes assigned to them. And again, this was established in 1988, and it took until recently for this to, to really affect, in a grand way, Brazilian politics. You have to, oh, excuse me, you have to pass the right laws, and you have to follow them. Again, Costa Rica, Chile, and Uruguay uh, have public tender processes that are transparent by law, and thus avoid the types of uh, non-transparent tendering processes that occurred throughout the rest of the region. Right? and is now taking down high-level politicians. Third, you have to grow institutional capacity. Okay? Uh, you have countries, especially in Central America, but in places like Paraguay and now Venezuela, that simply don't have the institutional capacity to confront the endemic corruption that plagues their, uh, their economies and their politics. Okay? So growing institutional capacity, which is to say uh, helping to, to incentivize um, the ability of institutions to get done what they want to get done on again. And lastly, coordinated efforts. We see this with Lava Jato, right? That Lava Jato investigators have cooperated with the United States, with Swiss authorities, with US authorities, and now with authorities in other countries in the region. And that is how they have been so successful, okay? Then we have the second. So this is, this is what we can do in big countries, right? We, we, I, I imagine we will see something like this in the future in Mexico. We might see something like this in the future in Argentina. It doesn't surprise me we've seen it in Brazil. But there are other places where it seems less likely to occur. And there we can turn to uh, the international community, international organizations in other countries. And the best model for this is the CICIG in Guatemala. The CICIG is the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, right? And it, was, it came about through an agreement between the United Nations and the Guatemalan government in 2006. And it's been incredibly successful at showing us the corruption that exists in the country, right? Uh, kind of headlined by the La Linea corruption case, which uh, involved ex-president Otto Perez Molina, 
who had to resign, facing impeachment, resigned instead. Uh, the removal of his vice president, Roxana Valdetti, and several prominent uh, ministers. Okay? Uh, this was, they were also involved in, uh, La Linea basically referred to, um, it was a, a customs case, customs corruption, all right, in the customs service. There's the Social Security Institute corruption case. The CSIG has, has dismantled extortion rings, and we have seen a drop in the impunity rate for homicides from 95% to 72%, right? Kind of any measure, by any measure, the CSIG has been incredibly successful in uh, in Guatemala, so much so that other countries now have have started to adopt or have tried to adopt uh, similar frameworks. And so the clearest example of this is well, we'll get to it. Um, clearest example would be the Moxie in Honduras. What we see is you know lessons that we take away from the, from the CCIG is that the CCIG was a long-term agreement side in 2006. It's now 2018. We're seeing people go down in 2015, 16, 17, 18. This had already been going for, for more than 10 years, which points to the importance of long mandates and long-term funding for these organizations to not expect quick results. Okay? Second of all, that this is the type of, thing that pri type of organization, the type of framework that prioritizes the rule of law uh, and those efforts in foreign policymaking. Okay? Uh, so essentially saying we have these organizations, these institutions have to follow the rule of law, and that's why that's how they can gain credibility in the eyes of the populace. Lastly, once again, they strategically coordinated independent commissions with other uh, aid efforts. Okay, so it's not just CCIG in Guatemala, it's the CCIG along with other organizations, uh, but they're cooperating, they're on the same page. Okay, so the question is, is this reproducible? Can we, can we export this model to other environments? And we're seeing an example of that with the uh, mission to support the fight against corruption and impunity in Honduras, the MOXIE, which it was put into place by the OAS and is now, uh, its, its director was recently, well, he recently resigned, um, but we are seeing kind of the United States, I think, in the past couple of weeks, has spoken to people in Honduras and has reaffirmed, the United States has reaffirmed its commitment to the MOXIE, which I think is a great thing. Um, so the CCIG and the MOXIE, Panama has floated the idea of adopting a similar model. Uh, El Salvador has uh, floated the idea of adopting a similar model. I think that, that this is a, a good instrument for the international community in places that lack the institutional capacity to undertake change uh, independently. So what can the US do? Well, I will add, this wasn't part of my notes, um, but I would say setting a good example would be a, would be a great first step. Uh, limiting, you know, th th these things are, uh, they're not just done at the executive level, this can be done at all sorts of different levels of, of the government here in the United States. Limiting shell companies is an important thing. Right? They hide the, identi the identities of the true uh, kind of beneficial owners and per permit corrupt actors to move and hide assets, launder money, evade law enforcement. So you know, limiting these shell companies, easier said than done, right? Uh, but nonetheless, this could be something that could help things. Second of all, uh, any anonymous ownership of real estate in the US, right? Um, so halting this. You know, the United States has, has too often turned a blind eye to, to kleptocrats in our midst. Not our kleptocrats necessarily, but kleptocrats from other places who, who have their holdings here in the United States. Funding the DOJ's Office of International Affairs, the Department of Justice's office, right? Uh, budget request. The last that I looked, there were, I think, 11,000 
foreign requests to the, um, to the OIA, the Office of International Affairs, that were backlogged. There are 11,000 backlogged requests because there, is, there aren't enough people working there and there isn't enough money to sort through those things, right? So that funding could go a long way. Tightening enforcement of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which seems kind of especially important uh, right now. This is a law passed in 1938 requiring that agents representing the interests of foreign powers in a, quote, political or quasi-political capacity disclose their relationship with a foreign government. Uh, this could help things, this could help essentially uh, prevent foreign agents from Latin America from laundering or hiding uh, money in businesses or shell companies here in the United States. And lastly, investment in greater US government capacity to tackle inter international corruption by justice, treasury, and state. There, there's, like a, there's a bipartisan consensus here in Congress uh, to support anti-corruption efforts, right? And to invest in greater government capacity, uh, but we need to see kind of concrete changes to, uh, to make that happen. And how am I doing time-wise? Am I all right? Fine. Okay. So just, just a second, I, I want to wrap up by, by simply summarizing, I think, some of the, the pertinent things. Then we're going to get into questions, which is going to be more interesting for all of you than just listening to me talk and talk and talk. So, you know, I think scandals are, are a sign of things getting worse. Or, excuse me, are not an indication of things getting worse. Scandals are an indication that people are no longer going to put up with corruption in their midst, right? Uh, people have protested, the middle class especially, but people have protested. Now, where have we seen protests, anti-corruption protests in Latin America in the past year or two? Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Honduras, Mexico, Peru, did I say Peru, Peru Colombia, the list goes on and on and on. That's a really good thing, right? It means that people are concerned and they want to affect positive change. The lack of, of movement that we see in the corruption indicators across, from Transparency International, which, which openly recognizes this, and other indicators, that lack of movement is probably due at least in part to the slow pace of change. And there's no better example of the slow pace of change than the United States which went from having a patronage-based system in 1883 to a merit-based system by the 1920s, okay? The adoption of legal frameworks and the mobilization of citizenry are very important steps for Latin American countries to seriously begin confronting corruption, okay? And uh, I am cautiously optimistic that, that that will be the case. All right, thank you very much. I'm going to have a seat now. Not necessarily. Or I can stay. Yeah. I'll stay standing. I'm going to grab my water. Okay. Uh, thank you. I'm going to grab my pen as well. We're going to start now with uh, questions and hopefully answers. I'd be happy to talk about individual cases, individual measures, any of the slides that I have up here that I went through quickly instead of spending lots of time on. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. OK. Or nothing. Sure. Yeah, sure, yes. Please, uh, my uh, name is Willy Valdivia. Excuse me. Give us name and affiliation. Thank you. Uh, my name is Willy Valdivia. I am originally from Peru. Also grow coffee in Colombia, so I have the opportunity to see sure. the news in both countries. Um, you mentioned something about you know, specific cases like Odebrecht or Lavajato. Mm -hmm. There is a racing problem in, in both countries, which is narcotraffic. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and just to sure. give you a, a, an idea, narcotraffic, you know, agricultural trade is $1.2 trillion. Mm-hmm. And then narcotraffic, the business, is around $400 million. And mm-hmm. now uh, this illegal trade is now pushing and shaping politics in other sure. countries. So I wonder you know, what is your take on the risk on democracy, on impunity? Would you like me to answer questions right away or gather a couple of them right away? Whatever. Okay. I'm seeing people nodding. Okay, great. All right, wonderful. Um, so kind of what, what's the role and the risk of, of narco-trafficking? Well, obviously, narco-trafficking is intimately tied up with, with corruption. Um, and huh, it, it is illicit, right? It's not a surprise, I think, that Uruguay and Chile, not, uh, not narco-trafficking routes, right? Whereas the, the corridor of Central America and Mexico are, that absolutely contributes to, to the temptation, right, to commit corruption. Uh, and I think that cannot be, be overstated, right? I don't talk a lot about this. I didn't talk about this in the presentation. Uh, but the literature looking at the influence of, of illicit industries uh, points to the damaging effects of, of narcotics, right, on, on combating corruption. But there's also something to be said for the, the strength of institutions at uh, lessening that temptation, right, which is to say narco-trafficking isn't going to make, narco-trafficking could definitely affect the, well, affects the, the fragility of, of the Mexican state and the ability of the Mexican state to, to respond to its citizens and to get things done efficiently, certainly. Uh, but narco-trafficking in and of itself is, is more of a symptom, I think, than it is a, a cause, right, of, of corruption. Um, you know, corruption was in, in Mexico was, as I'm sure probably all of you know, um, was just as pervasive, basically, in the, you know, from 1929 to, to, to the year 2000. But it was controlled by the PRI hegemonically at all levels of government. And, and narcotics started to be trafficked through Mexico in the 1970s, and especially the 1980s. Uh, but the PRI ensured that uh, criminal groups didn't arm themselves and didn't commit violence. Um, and as that hegemony broke down, that's when the violence really took off in Mexico. And so that points to, right, the, the, the violence that we see relating to this isn't because it didn't exist, exist before, it's because the response has, it is different now than it was in the past. Um, and so what's going to happen? I don't know. Uh, I hope things get better, but Mexico needs to take steps, first of all, to fight all other types of corruption before it can, I think, begin to, to, to address that. Especially something that's that's so complicated in terms of uh, supplier and, and, and supply and demand, right? Um, see similar things with with Peru and Bolivia and, and Colombia. Yeah. Yes. See a hand right there. Uh, Tyler Swanson with the Osgood Center for International Studies. Uh, a little bit like his question, but I want to ask specifically about FARC uh, and how Venezuelan corruption is allowing it to continue to move forward and what your perception is on how uh, corruption allows for instability of non-state actor groups to continue? Sure. Um, so, great question. Uh, in Venezuela, Venezuela right now suffers not just from kind of the highest perceived corruption rates in the region and, and 
some of the highest perceived corruption rates in the world, but also I think possesses one of the most fragile states right now, definitely in the region and possibly in the world, and has the lowest kind of lowest state capacity. What that means is that it has porous borders. It has almost no capacity to get anything done, right? Kind of the one glowing agency, the, the success story, the wasn't even an archipelago of success and an ocean of, of failure. It was just a single island was the Seniats, the tax collection service, and even that now is failing to collect taxes, right? So, you know, FARC and the, the threat of criminal organizations, you see, it's not, it's not, right now it's not really FARC in Venezuela. Uh, it's, it's the Venezuelan government in Venezuela, right, that is, that is engaged in narco-trafficking. Right, the the so-called cartel of of the sons, right, for the sun insignias that, that the generals wear on their on their uniforms. So, cartel of the sons is you know that is more powerful right now in Venezuela than than the FARC is. And guess what? They have better guns, you know. Uh, and so that is that is the highest level of corruption, right? I mean, that is that is corruption that is being exercised by members of the Venezuelan government uh, with total and absolute impunity. Uh, so my concern, you could say, yes, the low state capacity allows the, could allow the FARC or probably the, the ELN, right? Because the ELN is not demobilized in the way that the FARC has, has agreed to do, to, to move into Venezuelan territory. In fact, there are indications that in Tachira State and Zulia State, along the border, the ELN right now has uh, purchased radio stations and is broadcasting in those towns, right, and trying to recruit people. That's a major concern. But that's about increasing state capacity and getting rid of, uh, well, excuse me, changing, changing the government in Venezuela rather than it is, uh, you know, once again, a symptom of something m much greater and more worrisome, if that makes sense. I don't know if I answered your question, more or less. We were all here, yeah. Excuse me, yeah, yes. <clears throat> Bernardo Rico, IFC of the World Bank. Um, excellent presentation, probably one of the best on uh, corruption in Latin America that I've, I've, I've seen or heard in, in recent times. Really good. Thank you. Uh, specifically about Guatemala. So I, yeah. I opened and ran our offices in Central America and spent seven years in most of the countries in Central America, uh, primarily Guatemala. So I'm familiar with CICI and the work that it did. Sure. Having focused on the private sector um, mm -hmm. and seeing the I, I think a sorely needed role of CICI in addressing the corruption at the state level, seeing how CICI has kind of evolved into taking on the private sector, the corrupt yeah. private sector, you know, elements there, which I think are, it's something that's very good. I, and I've raised this question before um, in other forums. What, one of my concerns is, if you look, I'm curious to hear what you hear about the discourse amongst society in Guatemala when it may be that Sisig is being perceived as going too far yeah. with uh, what they're doing. So it's interesting that CC was created when the previous president, who's now actually, I think, also been um, indicted yes. awaiting trial, um, not not, the, not Otto Perez, uh, Alvaro Colom. Yep. So, and I think that's all. Month. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's actually all. It's it's, it's necessary now. The question is, and it seems like they're keep on they keep on digging further and further and going after which may be lesser crimes. And I'm just curious when. Like my question would be when. Would you think that CSIG is going for far, too far? Who is kind of monitoring CSIG's op, uh, operations? Um, the coordination amongst the U.S. government, other in, in Guatemala, other operators, um, and what kind of effect does that have on the cohesion of society, especially given the importance of the private sector in a country like Guatemala? 
That's a great question. I think, first of all, you know, if you don't want to go to jail in Latin America, don't become a president, right? Isn't that the lesson? Like, they're all in, they're all in jail. Um, if I knew the answer to that question, I, uh, I should be working somewhere else, I think. Um, that's a, it's a wonderful question. I, I just don't, it's not just the CCIG, right? I think that we're also seeing blowback in, with Lava Jato right now as well and, and with other investigations where essentially the authorities that were, that were cheered on by, by people are now uh, being criticized for going too far. Right? So I think what too far is is going to depend on the country, and it's going to depend on the level of, um, I don't want to say independence of, of prosecutors and of judicial police and, and, and investigators, but, but the depths to which they're willing to dig and you know, keep pulling at that thread. Uh, because where, where does that ultimately end? Uh, you know, probably everyone goes down, right? It, like with, with uh, narco-financing of politicians in, in Colombia. Well, in the 1980s, who couldn't have been somehow financed by, by, by narco money? In Guatemala, with so much high level of corruption, how can you somehow not be touched by it? How can you not be touched somehow by, by Odebrecht? In Brazil, I, I, I'm not quite sure. And so, you know, when, when investigators become crusaders, rather than acting within the bounds of, of their jobs, I think that can be a problem. I don't know what level that is, that is with the CCG and with Guatemala, right? Um, but I think that that crusader line is, is an important one. The role of the US is also very important, which is to say, the US, I think the United States needs to play a role in supporting these missions and these programs but without being, let's say, too visible, or maybe limiting that public exposure, so so it's not perceived as a tool of, you know, I don't know, the empire or something, right? Uh, and I think that there have been criti some criticisms of that in in Guatemala, uh, the way that there have been criticisms of the Moxie in Honduras for being a tool of uh, the Secretary General Almagro and, and the United States. Uh, so, if I don't entirely know the, the answer, but I would say, you know. The, the crusader thing and, and, and the United States role is is very important in, in public perception. Yeah. She's had her hand up from the very beginning. I feel so bad. Sorry. Yeah. Hi. I am from Guatemala, and I have experience as a judge in Guatemala for many years. And I think that this presentation was, was really great, and thank you for your optimism. Thank you. But I think this is a, a very key point in Guatemala. We're in a crucial moment because... Yes. Uh, as we have seen, the work of CC is also the work of the judicial institutions. Absolutely. And we need to focus on the independence and the autonomy of the institutions. Yes. And this is a year when the countries in the Northern Triangle are going to change um, attorney generals. Yes. And I think that the international community has to put a lot of attention to that because we have seen in El Salvador most of the presidents being investigated in Guatemala, not only... Um, the former presidents, but also the the president that is now Jimmy Morales. Office, Jimmy Morales. Yeah. So this is a battle for the institutions, and and it's a moment when the international community and especially the United States can really do a lot to help the citizens in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. and, and well, thank you for for sharing your thoughts, and and maybe um, if you can share with us also the the security aspects, you know, of corruption. Yeah. Corruption is not easy to fight inside. There is a yeah. lot of people that are in the line of fire, I will say, when when they investigate yeah. 
yeah. many powerful people yeah. in, in our countries. Absolutely. So, that can't be overstated, that fighting corruption, thank you very much, fighting corruption is incredibly dangerous. And I guess we don't talk about that enough. Uh, as, yes, the gentleman here. Oh. Certainly. Just, just a quick sec. Uh, the, the fighting can be incredibly dangerous, and uh, people who fight corruption should be applauded. Judges and, and fiscales and pe people like this who literally put their lives on the line. Uh, I have a friend in the Moxie uh, in Honduras who, who was there when someone was, was assassinated. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a, real, a real danger. So thank, you, thank you for your work. I mean, thank you for uh, uh, calling on me, Eric Farnsworth with the Council of America's John Excellent, as we know it would be. Congratulations. Um, a quick comment on Sasig, which I fully support, but it goes to this question about how much is too much. Mm. And Guatemala aside, my concern, my mm. worry is that everybody else in the hemisphere is watching this too. Yeah. Sasig had to be invited in by the government officials of Guatemala. And my concern is the incentive now for everybody else is to say, forget it. We're we not don't want this. anybody in because yeah. we don't know how the mandate ends. That's right. We don't know where the money's coming from, et cetera, et cetera. So while it might have a distinct impact in Guatemala, which I think we all support, mm -hmm. I do think we have to be careful about where it goes and under what authorities and, and, and for how long. Because an open-ended commitment says to every other country in the region, which faces similar issues, you know, no thank you, right? So we have to be careful of that feedback loop. But my question has nothing to do with Guatemala per se. It's a country that we all talk about but didn't actually come up in your presentation. A bit surprisingly perhaps that's China. And the question is, you know, working with the private sector, we see the negative impact on corruption that China has brought into the region. And I guess my question would be, are you tracking that? Are you, in your regression analysis, are you looking at countries with, in terms of their relationship with China and what that's doing in the corruption indicators? Is there something we should be considering? How are you envisioning that? Uh, which is ultimately, it's a relatively new phenomenon, but, mm -hmm. but how can we begin to visualize that? Yeah, thank you, Eric. You know, I, I didn't look at China, and that is just, that's an enormous oversight on my part. And as you are now, you are now the, the China Latin America expert here, so. Uh, you should be the one really answering that question, I think, uh, not, not, not me. Uh, but without a doubt, the money that, that China has brought to Latin America has made it, you know, ha increases the temptation of corruption, right? Furthermore, uh, China, I think, has shown where it has invested money in big projects that it is willing to look the other way when not all of that money makes it to, uh, to the project, right? Of the $60 billion that it has lent to Venezuela, uh, I'm not sure actually where most of that money is, right? And I, think, I think the Chinese government doesn't care that much uh, as long as they get their, their yuan back. So uh, that's absolutely kind of a, a nascent threat and something that, that we need to keep our eye on. Although once again, I would say, again, I see it like with narco-trafficking as, as something that that is a temptation, but not a cause. You know, not necessarily a cause of, 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 of more corruption. Right? It's it will manifest itself in places with existing weak institutions and and weak mechanisms of, of accountability. Okay. 
he already has a mic and wanted to talk, and then we'll go back over here. Sorry. Yeah, this gentleman. I'll you keep know, it really. You quick. mind? Do you mind if quick. I go? You mind? Uh, Adam Younger. Uh, good afternoon. Hi. Uh, INLC State Department. Um, so a particularly heinous case that I've been looking at uh, is the mayor of Iguala, oh, um, yeah. Jose Luis uh, Abarca. If I'm not correct, if I'm incorrect, and is that, is that the yeah. correct pronunciation? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that case is so horrific and so heinous um, and has been stymied at many layers of sure. the government. Sure. Um, if, if you're familiar, if not, I can... So how many people... So what he's referring to, for those of you who don't know, is the case in, in Iguala, Mexico, which I think is... Where is it? Michoacan, Guerrero? Where is it? Michoacan. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, where how many people... How many teachers... Uh, what, 43 or 57? 43? 43. 43. So 43. Oh, they're from one and went to the other, whatever whatever it is. In any case, 43 and... Uh, oh, okay. So I was right with both of my questions. Um, so they, they essentially disappeared, uh, and their remains have not, to the best of my knowledge, have not been found. Uh, they were purported to, they were going to protest, basically, and they commandeered uh, some buses. And one of the kind of leaked reports speculates that one of the buses was uh, contained heroin that was being trafficked by the police force from that municipality, and that they were given the order from the mayor and his wife to, to kill them. Uh, again, their bodies have not been found. I think that an Argentine forensics team investigated and they said that the remains that they found in this, whatever remains they found, were actually not the ones, were not the 43. Um, and the mayor and his wife went on the run, and uh, they blamed the governor, who blamed them, and they blamed Peña Nieto, and it was, and, and it was a whole big mess. Um, it, it's a horrific, tragic case. So uh, absolutely, and the, the impunity w with which these people operated uh, was astounding. What's the silver lining? Because my take today is that I'm being optimistic. My take is that Mexico went out and protested. And not just the people in, in Polanco. Everyone protested, right? And that is, that is a sea change from what we used to see in Mexico. Uh, I, I, you know, I think that people, people are fed up. There's a reason that Peña Nieto's approval rating is, what is it now, 7%? You know. No, it's that high. Still, it's still lower than, uh, than Maduro's. So, uh, you know, that's my optimistic take. A horrific case uh, that shows kind of corruption at all levels of the Mexican government and the police force and, and everything else. Uh, but maybe that will affect some positive change. How do you see what's happening with the elections? I mean, you mentioned that Iguala is I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't want to speculate. I don't want to speculate. I don't, I don't know all the details. In corruption, which is like, yeah, you Certainly. want to prosecute corruption, but right immediately of an election, which is like, why did you then prosecute him two years ago? Right. Right? It's like very, like, I mean, we've seen in this country what happened. I think that that's going to be part of the thing that drives Mexican vote right now, right? Is their perception of what's going on in terms of corruption with, with those people, for sure, whether or not they are eligible or not to run. Yeah. Whoever, yes, yes, this gentleman, and then this gentleman.
my name is Juliano Basili. I'm from Brazil. So how long we are going to continue in Brazil with Lava Jato? I was last Friday with the, mm. the, the justice. Uh, so I was with Mr. Moro. And I remember that he, he was telling me two years ago that he was just going to, to end all the things. <laughs> but we are still living that. And also, yeah. uh, what, what show uh, be the wings that can help with, politi with politicians in, in Brazil right now? So what, what do you think that, that, that is really going to, to happen for us with the, with the politicians in Brazil, I ask you this because there are many people that are going to be in election over there and, yeah. and we are expecting to see what is going to happen. Well, thank you. Uh, that's a great question. I, I can just speculate, first of all, that, again, they just started, you know, I think they, they thought they were just starting and it turns out uh, it's a really long thread in Brazil. Uh, and you still have people who are out and about doing whatever they want, Cunha and, and everyone else uh, that, are, that are basically fine, right? Uh, people that have been touched by, by the scandal. So I imagine that it will be going on for, for many more years, although in some part it depends on the new, uh, whoever replaced Rodrigo Janot, who was the woman who replaced him? Whatever her name is, Raquel, someone, whoever it is. Uh, it, it's going to depend in part on, on her willingness to, to go after people, right? You know, uh, the lesson, I think Lava Jato and, and all of this is a lesson of what can happen if, if there's too much... Uh, if there's too, too much corruption, which is that, who's going to run for office right now? Who's going to win? Is it going to be Bolsonaro? Because he's the only one who can run for office, basically. right? Who are the centrists that are running in Brazil? Uh, who are the people who are not under indictment? Who are the people who could remain out of jail? I don't know the question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, yeah. Yes. This young lady over here who's waiting so patiently. Sorry. Hi, Christina Arms with the American Foreign Policy Council. Thank you so much for this talk. Very informative. and. Very much enjoyed it. Um, this is going back to FARC. I wanted to see um, what your response was to their political party that formed, the um, Common Alternative Revolutionary yeah. Force. Would you still sure. talk about that in terms of a symptom of the problem? And I, I think the way you termed it, um, narco-trafficking in Latin America, is accurate. But how would you also fit this into that category? Do you think it's manifesting into something different? Now? The FARC party. Yeah. yeah, great. Yeah, so I think the FARC party... Uh, the what is Mirolanda's well whoever whoever is campaigning for the FARC party basically have decided not go to certain places to campaign right now right because they don't have the support in the populace uh, they quit the elections they quit because who supported the FARC party it, it was no one no please significant radicalization mm -hmm. of you know the, the the movement against the left mm -hmm. you know either petro or the farc mm -hmm. are confronting these issues of corruption and impunity and you know many of these cases but i think that the, the, the biggest problem is not only in colombia but also in other countries in south america is that when there is an investigation about corruption this governance say that it's an attack on the democratic institution and, you know, it, it questions the legality of the mm -hmm. investigation itself. What, you know, like the former or the current president in Peru say yesterday or last night that, you know, an investigation on what is happening in Lava Jato and the direct observations of the Brazilian um, businessmen right. 
challenge the security, the economical institution of the countries. And I think that that's the, the biggest threat that we are confronting right now, given there is a significant discontent on democracy itself. No. Which is a broader and deeper-seated issue in, throughout Latin America. No, thank you. I, I agree with him. I don't think the FARC party is a threat at all. Uh, I think the greater threat is, is that polarization and radicalization. Yeah. This gentleman here has had his hand up for a long time. Thank you. Jerry Hyman at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I wonder if you've given any thought, and if you have, you're pretty unique if you have, um, to um, drawing a line, a statute of limitations, um, mm. in prosecuting mm. previous regimes. Because one of the, one of the characteristics of anti-corruption prosecutions at least around globally mm -hmm. is that a new regime prosecutes its former its 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 predecessor, usually of the other party. Right. That's when the corruption prosecutions stop. So they stop with the present regime and they start with the previous regime. So there's a bit of a moral dilemma here um, about great prosecuting your predecessors and how far back do you go. Uh, and the Europeans learned a bit of a lesson on that yeah. in what was called lustration in Central Europe, right. where they tried to find, dig out all the communists. Well, it turned out everybody had been corrupted in one way or another, right. if you want to put it that way, by connection to the communist parties. They were pretty wound up, you know, in almost, almost prosecuting everybody, but in particular, to prosecute your opponent. And does that mm -hmm. taint um, the prosecution? Does it taint the corruption effort? And does it taint the democracy? Well, I think it depends on the eyes of whom Right, so and the, the supporters of the current administration, it won't it won't taint uh, it won't taint them, right? But if you're not a supporter of the current administration, maybe it will taint it, right? I think that's a, you know the the lessons that you speak to, the lessons from central from Central Europe are are really important, and possibly this is something that can be applied to to, to Guatemala and, and Central America in general with uh, with these external frameworks that are being uh, imported or transported to. Uh, Guatemala and Honduras and other places, which is, can there be a statute of limitations? Maybe that will allow governments to sign an agreement if they, if they understand that they won't be the ones to suffer the costs of, of signing that agreement, right? Maybe that's a way to make those palatable to, uh, to Panama and El Salvador and, and other places. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't, it's a wonderful idea. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? Okay. Um, hello, my name is Sam Miranda. I, uh, I'm not affiliated, I'm retired. But I have a question uh, regarding... <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Possibly I'm the only one here not being paid to be here. Um, re with respect to Argentina, could you comment uh, from the corruption perspective about what's been going on with the uh, assassination of uh, Alberto Nisman? Uh, that's a good question. Do you know what? I'm, I'm, I don't feel that I'm an expert enough in the, in the particulars of the Nisman case to, to really go into depth on, on what's going on. Just that uh, there seems to have been a cover-up, which, as we all know, is worse, usually worse than the crime. Although in this case, man, it's, it's an assassination, so it's a pretty, pretty, pretty big crime. Uh, but it seems that the, the Christian Fernandez Kirchner administration is going to have people who, are, who will fall, right? Those of who, are, who already have a left a long time ago. Right, but the people around her are kind of being, being, being picked off. Uh, 
sorry that I can't speak to that in, in greater depth. One last question. I am Ed O'Brien from the State Department. I feel like I'm asking Jerry's question in a slightly different way. Sorry. But no, it's um, in terms of like in like in Ukraine, I was just was recent, most recently mm. there, and, and the anti-corruption was you know forces after the revolution were immediately turned on the anti-corruption activists. And do you see a lot of evidence of that of trying to use these kind of things to tar and get people out of? Is that common? As political tools, you're saying. Um, there are accusations that that is occurring in Brazil right now, right? Uh, that that it was used as a political tool to get rid of Dilma. That it's been used as a political tool to get rid of candidate, possible candidates for the upcoming election. So whether that's true or not, I think is in the eye of the beholder, right? I'm not sure that there's a there's an objective way to, to evaluate evaluate that and look at that. But obviously, that's going to be the risk with some of these with some of these scandals, especially as they knock off. Uh, as elections occur and they knock off potential candidates. Yeah. I don't know if I answered it. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I have a little, a little story to share. Certainly. With our friends here. Uh, a few years ago, about almost 10 years ago, is there anyone from El Salvador here? There was a Salvadorian president, Francisco Flores, who was uh, really a favorite son of uh, President G.W. Uh, Bush. And he was promoting Paco for, he called him Paco. Uh, I, know, I know it because I, I have been attended meetings in which uh, both were there. So, Paco Flores ended up with a very well-endowed foundation here in Washington, or association, or I don't know what he was doing. But then it came to light that uh, the last day in office, uh, there were a few checks on his from his desk, which included uh, payments from uh, from some foundations in Europe. Well, it was it was uh, it was an amount of all the checks were were about two million dollars. So he just put the checks in his pocket and he left. But uh, two days later, the police got. A hold of him. So uh, I would have thought that the U.S. administration, with all these intelligence instruments they have at their hands, that would know the long career that uh, Don Paco had uh, in uh, dipping the finger in every <laughs> in every dish. So uh, one of the things that has to improve, not only for the United States, but uh, for, for various countries, for all the countries, is not to include also only narco-trafficking or homicides, but how 
the mechanics of corruption, which uh, which executive from a, from a public office for from the autonomous entities is getting uh, funds from extra governmental sources to make decisions that favors X, X or Y uh, companies. Well, everything which is good has to come to an end. So we thank you very, very much for your attendance this afternoon, but not, let's not go away without a final round of applause for our star teacher. Thank you.